hjärtligt välkommen. Du lyssnar på en inspelning från internationell författarscen på Kulturhuset Stadsteatern med författaren Maggie Nelson i samtal med Jenny Thunedal. Mitt namn är Ingemar Fast och jag är konstnärlig ledare för litteraturscenen i detta stora allkonsthus vid Särgretstorg. Låt samtalet ta sin början. Thank you. I'm very glad to be here. Thank you all for coming. I'm really thrilled to be here. Thank you. Uh, and I have to start by saying that I have, despite or because of the fact that I've been reading and admiring these books, your work, for many years, found it unusually difficult to come up with good questions for this conversation. <laughs> The reason for this is, I think, also the reason why I keep returning to your writing. Because it is a literature that does produce very difficult, crucial questions to you as a writer. But it also, I feel, gives itself the task of working through these questions. Not necessarily in order to answer them, but in order to think and to be accountable and vulnerable in the face of them. The unanswered questions that your work produces seem rather to be questions to the reader, to the world, to me when I read and when I write and when I live, about my accountability, my gaze, my presumptions, my experience and or knowledge and lack thereof. But here we are and <laughs> I will try. Um, Leo Tolstoy famously wrote that All happy families are alike. Each unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. I think it's fair to say that The Organauts is a book that complicates this statement. But I would like to start this conversation there anyways and ask you, is The Organauts to you a book about the becoming of a happy family? And if so, Is that also what it was from the onset? <laughs> And if not, why not? How happy is your family? Um, yeah. Uh, starting with the easy, easy questions. Um, uh, I would say that it is a book that was explicitly undertaken with the goal of trying to write about happiness, um, primarily because I like to try and do things I haven't done before, and I've written a lot of books about pain <laughs> various mm. of, of, of differing varieties, and of course there's pain in the Argonauts as well. But um, uh, I wouldn't say, really, I wouldn't use the language about becoming a happy family just because the word family is, um, uh, I mean, it may change by environment or country or discourse, but you know the words becoming a happy family it's it sounds like reifying something that i think the book tries to take apart you know mm. but about but about becoming for sure and about happiness um definitely you know i think mm. well maybe we should stay with the the happiness because uh-huh. uh you have this uh quote about not being not knowing how to write about holding Mm-hmm. and about happiness. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Sorry, I don't find the quote now. That's okay. Here it is. Okay. <laughs> uh, when you show Harry a first draft of the book, 
He says, why can't you just write something that will bear adequate witness to me, to us, to our happiness? Easy task. Right? Yeah. <laughs> why can't you just? <laughs> why can't you just? Because I do not yet understand the relationship between writing and happiness or writing and holding. Uh, did the writing teach you that? <laughs> That's a good question. I mean, I think, ironically, uh, I mean, part of why I love writing books, and by books I don't mean writing, just writing, I mean actually like uh, using the book as a unit of composition is because it just seems to me, and always has, um, even when I like to make you know, handmade books or letterpress books or something, a great container for holding um, as an object. So I think all the, I think all my books probably do know something about holding that I don't know, but I think like a lot of people, maybe some of you, I don't know, you can tell me later, but uh, if you have a practice of writing towards the hardest things in your life or towards the spots that seem hottest or the spots that seem most taboo or whatever it is that if you have a kind of um, trained transgression as a practice, um, you can get a little slash and burn um, <laughs> sometimes where um, holding is not your number one priority. You know, you can be, I mean, in, in, a, in a book that I think is probably here, The Art of Cruelty, which is a book I wrote, which is about cruelty and art, and is a little bit more um, well, uh, straightforward cultural criticism. But I talk in one chapter in, the, in that book about um, Samuel Beckett and other people whose idea of writing, as opposed to um, uh, accretion or embroidery or something, was actually about boring holes in something, a kind of like laser-like focus that could be so hot it would actually annihilate that which it looked at. And I was very, in my, I've, I've been compelled by these different metaphors about what writing does. But of all those things I'd been compelled by, lacerating, burning holes, whatever, holding was not one that I consciously had um, thought about. But in the Argonauts, um, I was very taken with the British psychologist, uh, probably many of you know his work, uh, D.W. Winnicott. And for those of you who know Winnicott, you'll know that holding is his um, uh, one of his very favorite not metaphors, um, because he's actually mm -hmm. talking about the holding of the infant and that the old that the infant needs, you know, to be held well enough that it doesn't feel like it's falling or falling to pieces, um, but not so tightly that it feels obviously smothered. And that kind of um, uh, and that 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 notion of good enough holding, a good enough mothering, um, was one that that I thought of a lot while writing. But I've actually been thinking that mm -hmm. all your books. <coughs> are about holding mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. maybe that's the reason why why they differ so much from each mm -hmm, other because mm -hmm. you have to find new literary forms in order to hold uh, yeah i mean also holding is different like i mean that in that instance about you know a kind of maternal or parental holding uh there are motifs in the other books about ways of gathering. So like mm -hmm. in Bluets, it might be about making a bower, these bower birds who make um, collections of blue things to show off to try and get a mate, you know, or, um, but that kind of uh, uh, kind of hunting and gathering for, for beauty um, was a more of a, um, so like, 
that kind of hotshot nest making or something, for lack of a better term. But and then in um, a book of mine called "The Red Parts," um, which is about the murder of my aunt, um, it had a more operative metaphor of holding, which um, uh, one of the, that book's early titles was "The Book of Shells," and um, in my aunt's case, uh, the book of shells was um, literally the, um, she was murdered in 1969, and at that time, I guess, when you went to buy ammunition, you would have to sign into the book of shells to write your name down that you were purchasing ammunition. So one of the features of her trial was reproducing this book of shells to show that the handwriting of this person on trial might have matched this ammunition purchase. Um, but also, since she was shot, I'm sorry, this is getting, we're just going to veer from beauty into ugliness, but since she was shot in the head, um, and since the, uh, I can't think of the word, paraphernalia, debris from the bullets was left in her head, there was a kind of sense in which I was kind of trying to, it was called the red parts, because I'm kind of also trying to read what happened to these parts of her body. Um, at any rate, that was a very different metaphor of holding and then obviously a violent act which violates the containment of that holding. Um, but I think in each book there's a different kind of uh, an interest in a form um, about the ways in which um, if, if something can't be held, to what extent it can be gathered uh, even for an evanescent time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. Gathering is is also, I feel, important in in many of mm-hmm. your writings, uh, and in the Organauts, it's almost like I mean, you don't like the word family, but you do use the term uh, many gendered mothers, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, other writers and thinkers whose whose words and thoughts you sort of gather and create around you throughout the book and this is something that also goes on (coughs) Mm -hmm. in a slightly different way but in bluettes Mm -hmm, for instance mm -hmm. and I've been thinking a lot about that how you use that and how this sense of collaboration or collectivity or community Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. seems liberating Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. for me Mm. I mean it's generous Mm-hmm. obviously, t- to the reader. Mm-hmm. But it's also liberated in relation to the idea of the singular individual mm-hmm. author, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which is an idea that still is quite pervasive, at mm-hmm. least here in Sweden. Maybe it's a little bit different um, in America. <laughs> but it's. Um, but I mean, the, the image of the unique individual is also a huge deal, of course, in, in capitalist yeah. society. Yeah. Um, yeah. I was thinking, how yeah. has the writing of literature always been this kind of communal mm-hmm. affair for you, mm-hmm. uh, or promiscuous? Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. And you know, I, I should say that you know the word family. Um, I mean, I thought of the Argonauts um, uh, and all the marginal citations that it has, very much like making family in a way, mm-hmm. but along the lines of the many gendered mothers of my heart phrase that I stole from a poet, Dana Ward. Um, uh, I think the idea was that <clears throat> intellectual family or queer family or all these different kinds of family you might make um, on the page uh, uh, 
were not um, subsets or imitations of something that was the nuclear family, you know, that it would kind of more was a horizontalizing desire, you know, to, 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 um, to allow gathering and sociality um, and intimacy to be the umbrella under which many kinds of family, you know, or relation could, could land. Um, and, you know, I don't know, I never, I don't have a... I don't have an ethos like I've set out to destroy the you know patriarchal single author model of authorship or something like that. Um, I think I mean I love it that um, I was introduced vis-a-vis -vis Roland Barthes' A Lover's Discourse because um, I obviously adore Barthes and um, a lot of the style of the Argonauts with the marginal citations was just stolen from him um, when I was having trouble. In all my books, I've uh, had to solve the question of how to cite people differently because I know how to do it <clears throat> if you're writing you know, an academic uh, scholarly book and how bibliographies are supposed to look, but it's so boring to me as a writer to just slow down that much to footnote and you know nowadays everyone has google books you can just mm. put in the phrase you know life is a series of moods ralph waldo emerson and you will it will come up for you you don't need i mean it's it's nice to have bibli i'm not down on bibliographies i'm just saying i'm always looking for ways to move a little faster um without so much uh, apparatus and so and and bart um you know ironically maybe um you could see it his fast and loose uh, way with citations as a kind of performance of mastery, um, you know, just write whatever, Novalis, you know, write whatever, you know, Nietzsche, you know, and, and, and a kind of, um, but I, I, uh, I think he is a great um, undoer of mastery in many ways, and, and mastery is often something that we, I think, project onto texts, um, more than what they're actually doing. So I think, uh, I can't remember what the question was, but I think <laughs> that, um, but I, I think that, but, but citation and explicitly naming um, who you've invited to your party, I often say party instead of family, I realize I'm like, so like who you've invited to the party of the book, um, citation is one way of saying who you've invited, but, um, but I really also like in poetry, uh, I think that there's a kind of beautiful tacit intertextuality where if you just say apple or farm or house, you know, you're both referencing those objects and you're also potentially referencing, you know, mm. the platonic farm that may have appeared in other poems before or something. And, um, I don't know if people. And when you when you write about sucking stones somewhere in Bluettes, it's kind of uh, Beckett's. Yes, absolutely. So I think that um, yeah. even when, like in a lot of my poetry, which never has citations in it, except for one book, Jane. Um, that to me they're very. Um, I mean, it's like Paul Ceylon, who I adore. Um, I feel like you know. Many, many, much, much ink has been spilled about, you know, if he says, you know, counter swimmer, you touch, I'm going to misquote, but, you know, you, you touch all 36 banks or something. You know, people will write a whole dissertation on why does he use 36 and, you know, what does he mean counter swimmer? Which river is he talking about? You know, and he's used no, he's used no citation explicitly at all. Mm -hmm. So there, I'm, I'm just trying to say there are many ways of um, invoking 
um, the dead and the social and the intimate um, and and then I just try and do it in different ways and different projects, you know. But it's always a party. There's no sort of singular. Yeah. I mean, isn't it always a party then? Yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I don't know. I mean, I don't know what book isn't a no. party in that way. Mm. I mean, some books aren't a party, <laughs> mm. but but in terms of um, participating in um, in the records of thought that literature yeah. has left us, yeah. you know. Mm. Um, the image of the, the Argo is mm -hmm. important in the Argonauts that you're quoting Bart. Mm -hmm. uh, this ship that stays the same even though its parts are constantly being replaced. Mm -hmm. And it is to do with language and loving and genealogy mm -hmm. and gender, I think. Mm -hmm. Repetition and change. Mm -hmm. And you quote Bart, but it also has a lot to do with Butler, to my mm -hmm, mind, mm -hmm. and uh, and also Wittgenstein, mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. with the the notion of the unutterable contained in the utterable, yeah. which is important yeah. to you. Yeah. Uh, but also, long question. But also <laughs> with ordinary <laughs> language. I got Butler, Wittgenstein, yeah. and what was the other one? Yeah. Uh, no, the art. Wait, Bart, the Argonauts. Yeah. yeah okay. But <laughs> I want to get to the ordinary yeah, yeah. language. Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. Yeah. That. You have, I feel you have an ongoing interest in ordinary language, mm -hmm, in mm -hmm. the use of ordinary language and the problems mm -hmm. of ordinary language, mm -hmm. not only as in naming, mm -hmm. but in, in the Organauts, it's also about the ordinary and mm -hmm. your book as a celebration of the ordinary mm -hmm, which mm -hmm. within the extraordinary mm -hmm, and vice versa. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, could you say something about this, uh, the ordinariness? Yeah, I'm so glad that you have brought that up only because I feel like it's, for me, it, it, that's a lot of the, maybe it's not very repressed, but repressed content of a lot of, I mean, I, I, like I was just describing about um, certain poems that I love, I I really do, um, uh, I don't know if you in Sweden ever read Robert Creeley, but he was an American poet who was very important to me, and he's, you know, very, very, the 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 idiom of objects that appear in the poems is very small. Um, George Oppen is another whom I I love on that account. But I and I and I love all the ordinary language philosophers. Um, and I do think that um, I mean I love reading very baroque uh, writers. But I don't know. I always blame my mother because we all blame our mothers for everything. But my mother teaches business communication, and she teaches like how to take complicated jargon and boil it down to like four bullet points on like everything you want to say. And growing up, I became very interested in esoteric poetry, probably as a way of um, rebelling against that ideology. But as I've grown older, as you know, we all realize our mothers were then right about everything. That I realize that um, that her, you know, albeit in a totally different sphere, her kind of, you know, rabid pursuit in herself and others for clarity um, and for saying things and as and as and as pared down a way as possible has has absolutely impacted the way that I write, um, and it has to do with the unutterable, like you're saying, because. I think I'm interested in that paradox of kind of how how spare could it be and still summon something 
kind of infinitely complex, I guess, um, or mm -hmm. even even potentially, you know, the un the unutterable. Um, and I think that Wittgenstein's faith that you just don't need to worry about the ineffable. Um, well, it has been very liberating to me. Um, not that I ever tried to chase after the ineffable. You know, um, in English we say "f the ineffable." Um, but I think not that I ever chased it down per se. But I think um, uh, I guess the ordinary language allows me to focus more on uh, form, like structure. I guess mm -hmm. because it's often in the structure of like what is being juxtaposed with what or what anecdote might um, juxtapose with what theory uh, in, in which I think that inutterable can begin to be built in a book, if that makes sense. You know, not so much in the atomistic phrasing. But in, in the Organauts, it's not only the ordinary language, it's mm -hmm. also the ordinary devotion mm -hmm. right. and yeah, an yeah. utterly ordinary experience. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's, yeah. it's a very sort of intricate weave yeah. of extraordinary and ordinary that you're working with. Yeah, it's it? really funny actually because in the early days of writing that book, when I was describing to my agent what it was about, I, would, I said, I'm trying to square Winnicott's idea of ordinary devotion as a mother with Wittgenstein's idea of ordinary language yeah. as a philosopher. And he would be like, give it to me in different lane. And no, no one wants to read that. You know? And then I'd be like, oh, okay, it's about my first year taking care of a mm -hmm. child and my relationship with you know, a multi-gendered person. And I'd be like, okay, that's better as a description, whatever. But I think that um, uh, those things are all going on on the, you know, Mm. The tracks are parallel with with those questions, you know. Mm. But yeah, I mean, often people. I don't know if you all do this, but I think sometimes people have a a gendered idea about um, the material or the everyday and the quotidian, and then the abstract and the cerebral, and think that you know, you're mired in the material and you have to kind of, you know, ascend the ladder to get to the heavens where the ideas are. And, um, you know, I, I don't, my, my first drafts are often too cerebral. Um, so I have to do kind of forced writing to um, tell embodied stories, you know? And I know mm. that the writing often needs it, so I will undertake it, but mm. I don't, I don't, um, uh, I think because I also don't experience, I mean, The Argonauts is kind of a book about this as well, I, that I, um, you know, people who like don't like the book on Amazon or something, they'll say like, like, as if you're thinking about Judith Butler when you're in the shower, you know, I'm like, well, yeah, like, I am, like, are you? <laughs> you know, like, you're not? So mm. I think that that kind of weave of what we think about yeah. and what we do is a very natural um, part of the day, especially for those of us who do intellectual labor. So that doesn't seem, you know, odd or opposed to me at all. But is it not also to do with the fact that uh, when you apply words like ordinary mm -hmm. in, in a queer uh, mm -hmm. situation mm -hmm. or something that is outside of the mm -hmm. kind of heteronormative expectations mm -hmm. on living, loving, mm -hmm. whatever, mm -hmm. it, something happens as well. The, the notion of the ordinary becomes mm -hmm. 
political in a way mm. or charged with something. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a fascinating word now that you're saying it over and over again because yeah. now I'm thinking... I'm kind of stuck on that. <laughs> yeah, well, now I'm thinking that... Um, uh, ordinary does not mean normative. No. So... I was introduced to Winnicott by Eve Sedgwick, who we were just talking about outside, who was my teacher, um, as you would know if you read The Argonauts, because I uh, have a, a, a chunk of that book was um, is transformed from a talk I gave in homage to her at a, a talk series um, in the States um, uh, devoted to her called Tendencies. And I... Uh, one of the courses that Eve, uh, that Eve was my teacher in was called Non-Edipal Models of Psychology. And she was very taken with Winnicott's... Um, uh, I mean, before when I said good enough mothering, but I also said good enough parenting, that is a reflection of um, the fact that um, Winnicott may talk about um, good enough holding, um, a mother, as he'll say, might often do it, um, but it doesn't have to be the mother that does the holding, you know? So there's a kind of, um, uh, there's a there's a kind of spaciousness in his writing, which was uncommon for a British uh, white man writing uh, at the time when he was writing. And I think it was in part because, I mean, historically, he was also talking about what children needed who were, um, moved out of London during the war and were removed from their parents. Um, so the question became what, what, what would be good enough holding for these children apart from um, their biological parents. So I think that there's a kind of... Um, uh, there are interesting and m maybe unexpected lineages about places to look for um, what Eve would, would call queer... Um, uh, queer relations, uh, not always just in queer theory or where you mm. think you might find them, and, and that was what her class about non-edipal models of psychology was about. You know, that makes sense. Um, I think about this uh, first sentence in the in the book. I don't know why I keep losing my quotes in my papers, but. Uh, it's an extraordinary sentence. Uh, it's a beautiful sentence. And uh, uh, it sort of couples the phrase, I love you, mm -hmm. and the ass-fucking next to each <laughs> other. And it's possible to read this, at least when you reread the book, as an almost demonstrative gesture towards the reader entering the book. Mm -hmm. Because you're coupling love and intimacy to a sexual practice that I think is very often read as queer still. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's a kind of, it tells the reader from the onset mm -hmm. that this is going to be a book about the desires mm -hmm. of mothers mm -hmm. in a different way. Mm -hmm. uh, was it obvious for you that you wanted to start the book this <laughs> way? or? That's funny, I know. It, I mean, it, it's a radical start. It's a beautiful start. Uh, thank you. It's been referred to... Is a kind of like, you know, abandoned hope. All ye who enter, yeah, <laughs> all ye who yeah. enter here, kind of a um, announcement. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, it wasn't the first start, um, but I was uh, in trying to give the book uh, some semblance of narrative and chronology. <coughs> excuse me. I did an edit um, of its many moving pieces that uh, tried to identify um, moving from the book's time frame, which I believe is, I don't know, 2007 to maybe 2013, I, th I guess. And um, uh, that chunk with the ass fucking and the Beckett um, starts October, comma, 2007, and then it, and then it describes oh, that period, you know? So that was kind of the, by accident, that was just the first temporal um, announcement of, of, of what the bracket I wanted it to be. And then I liked it, I thought it was cool, and I thought, um, I mean, I did have the thought flash through my mind, like, there go all the prizes, <laughs> or any prizes, like, there, there goes everything. And I thought, and weirdly, I was so wrong, which is crazy, but I definitely was like, but I was very good with that. I thought, that's good. It, this is a good start, because it will, um, it'll just be like, if you don't want, if you don't want to continue on, mm. then don't, you know. Um, and it also introduced, though, very quickly, a lot of the things that were going to be at issue um, in the book in terms of, uh, uh, you know, the, the book is often talked about as being about gender, and in some ways it is, but um, it's also, um, you know, pairs this conversation, um, this kind of ongoing, maybe a little settled now, but was ongoing early on in my relationship with my partner about language. Um, uh, and when we met, he was more of a, I don't know what the word is, like a anarcho-primitivist or something, like an anti-civilization kind of um, uh, in that mindset. And, um, and I was obviously not, you know. So I think it was also a good passage because um, it kind of, it, it, it put in um, the sexuality and and that ongoing debate about language right, right off the bat, you know. Mm. But uh, it's also, I mean, we're talking about what this book is about. I think it's also a lot to, uh, about I mean, for me, at mm -hmm. least, you know, you, you get what you need from a book. Mm -hmm. <laughs> for me, mm -hmm. it's also a lot about this notion of mothering mm -hmm. uh, as something that isn't connected to to the normative image of the mother mm -hmm. or the, f the, f the woman's body, mm -hmm. like the... the uh, but it is a book about intimacy and vulnerability mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. about... Uh, trying to to be together mm -hmm, right mm -hmm. uh, yeah you just that wasn't a question it was just a yeah 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 mm. Mm. <laughs> good uh, I've thought a lot about yeah. identification yeah. and disidentification yeah in relation to the organouts I'm just gonna say yeah for the rest yeah of the time. no I'm not I'm gonna yeah. talk right. uh, yeah that who gets to identify with whom mm -hmm. and how, mm -hmm. and where are the limits of possible mm -hmm. identification? Yeah. Uh, was that, I mean, that must have yeah, been. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think that disidentification, I'm sure that many of you guys probably have read uh, Jose Munoz's book, Disidentifications. It's, you know, it, it has relevance, you know, 
in queer theory, um, as a modality of how many queers go through the world as a disidentify, you know, kind of, I mean, this isn't a great definition at all, but you know, it's kind of a taking what you need and leaving the rest um, way of moving through um, identifications and cross identifications and problematic identifications and all kinds of things. Um, uh, but I think that the book is, um, uh, the reason why I was kind of saying about hesitations about like, you know, becoming a happy family or things that, that there can be, um, uh, the book makes a kind of argument vis-a-vis -vis Lacan's comment about, um, you know, a mad, you know, a madman uh, who thinks he's a king is mad, but a king who thinks he's a king is also mad. Um, and that, um, that that a kind of one-to-one -one identification with here is a thing, king, I think I am it, I am king, that there's a kind of psychosis in that identification as well. Mm -hmm. And in some ways, a disidentification um, uh, can slip us off of um, in a way. I mean, there's obviously great pleasure for certain people in feeling like you occupy a role, um, but then you get back to the butler's very lovely um, taking apart of the Aretha Franklin you know, phrase, you make me feel like a natural woman. It's so complicated and so amazing. You know, I don't, I'm not one. I feel like one and I feel like a natural one because what would it be like? I feel like an unnatural woman. You know, there's so many um, amazing layers in that statement um, and also that that's the song about love, you know, and that all these layers of identification and misidentification and simile and confusion about the natural would all be part of um, a profession of love is an amazing thing as well. Mm. Um, I've also thought about uh, normalcy and uh, passing and... Um, there's an instance in the book where you describe how you are the eye of the book uh, as a, a white, feminine-looking, pregnant woman is actually saluted by members of the military. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, and you write, so this is the seduction of normalcy. Uh, and I think that the, this book poses very difficult questions mm -hmm. about normalcy and about this seduction mm -hmm. and normatives and passing mm -hmm, and privileges. Mm -hmm. yeah. And it does so in a time when this insisting on these difficult questions mm -hmm. seems crucial and yet mm -hmm. somehow difficult. Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. Because there is also this sense in the world that everything is sort of on fire, everything is mm -hmm. yeah. going to hell, basically. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and how yeah. can we keep thinking yeah. about these things yeah. and asking the difficult questions? Yeah, I mean, that moment I included it. I went on a kind of mini book tour in my second trimester for The Art of Cruelty, and it was a very interesting experience. Um, just to be going around very visibly pregnant, talking about sadism and masochism and, you know, killing pieces and shooting yourself. And I was just a weird, you know, and, and it was just, and as I say in the book, you know, there wasn't, you know, a single event really where someone didn't say like, you know, you know you're with child, right? You know, I was like, I know, I got it. Like, but I think that, um, uh, but that moment where I was in the airport and, and, and the military person saluted me and, 
and and knowing that in the United States, at any rate, that um, certain forms of maternity are um, regularly despised, um, non-white maternity, basically, and to have the conflagration of, you know, um, both a misunderstanding of how I thought about myself mm -hmm. or my pregnancy, but because of, you know, the way I look being saluted in a certain way, but also, um, you know, also bringing up the question of um, if you aspire to be a race traitor, <laughs> if you aspire to not accept the seductions of normalcy, um, you know, how do you know what to do in micro moments of a life in which um, this person was also just aiming to do something that I think he thought was kind hmm. um, and, rec and recognizing me, recognizing something about me that in fact didn't make me feel bad even as I knew of all of its problems. So I think those instances are, um, you know, they were instances I chose to uh, focus in on in the book without, without offering any... Um, it was very easy in this book, like I would write an anecdote out and I would usually have like three or four self-righteous sentences after the anecdote and then like all, you know, good, you know, editing minds do, you go back and, you know, would take, take all the self-righteous drivel off from around those parts and just let the anecdotes stay um, undecided and un um, un uncommented upon for the most part. Mm. Uh. In Bluets, uh, you quote, you have this quote by Joseph Joubert. Mm -hmm. uh, clearness is so eminently one of the characteristics of truth that it often even passes for truth itself. <laughs> and then you go on to saying, I know all about this passing for truth. At times, I think it's possible that it lies as if a sleight of hand at the heart of all my writing. Back to the talking, back to the business, right? <laughs> the yeah, business, right? yeah. But it's it's yeah. interesting because yeah. I'm I'm very interested in the notion yeah. of a literary truth. But at mm -hmm. the same time, I have I've read texts by you where you sort of seem very provoked by the notion of truth or disinterested mm -hmm. in the notion mm -hmm. of truth, and yet here is sort mm -hmm. of truth mm -hmm. as style. Mm -hmm. uh, could you develop on the the notion of what do truth? You, um, what uh, do you think? What do you think a literary truth is? I think it has to do with uh, clarity, mm -hmm. and I think it has to do with ordinary language mm -hmm. <laughs> and with holding and editing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, I think it doesn't have to do with facts. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, so much. Right, right, right. Um, I think, you know, back to that book, The Art of Cruelty, there's a chapter in that book called The Brutality of Fact, which is a um, taken from uh, a collection about, the Fra about Francis Bacon, the painter. And um, he always said that he was painting the brutality of fact. Um, 
And it kind of like, it's not my fault the world's brutal. I just have to paint things like I see them, you know. And I think that in that chapter, which I um, also talk about a British novelist I'm very fond of, Ivy Compton Burnett, and her characters just say these astoundingly cruel things to each other, always with the caveat of, you know, I just need to be honest, you know, that whole, um, you know, that whole, I can't think of the phrase, uh, whatever, just kind of uh, cruelty via honesty. I think, um, I guess what I was interested in about clarity or directness is that I think, um, I mean, now it's hokey to say this because I'm not, I don't even want to get into the so-called president of the United States, but the... Um, but the, one of the very oft-repeated phrases people would say during that campaign and still now is like he just says it like it is, um, uh, which is, you know, calling the injection of poison over and over again, poison, toxicity, brutality, um, as fact, you know. And I, mm. I'm, I'm interested, I guess, in that problematic because um, I don't, all of which is to say I think clarity um, and honesty um, I aspire to in my writing, but I don't know that they're the same thing as truth, you know, and that they can serve different purposes, mm. um, and that there are many different truths um, or many different things that could be said about a situation, and um, and I think the truth, whatever the truth is, I don't know. That's why I'm, I'm, I'm not. It's not rhetorical. I actually really want to know yeah. what you mean when you say it. Um, because for me, I don't know how to explain it. I'm getting an image in my head of just a kaleidoscope, which is like the kaleidoscope to me of feeling and like the palette of it would probably be like the truth of one of my books, um, not like the truth is I hate my mother or the truth is I never wanted to you know, mar marry you. Or like, you know, we say all these things or things appear to us as truths as if we're in a kind of vertical um, excavation um, of our souls and then we're going to get down to a truth, yeah. and I don't, um, I don't, I'm a, I think I'm more interested in performance, like, not performance as the opposite of truth, but like in, in, um, in, in performing the many different ways you might feel about an issue, or, you know, I guess it's performed ambivalence and performed complexity, you know. Mm. Uh, there's also an, an unopened letter in Bluets, um, uh, I felt no romance when you told me you carried my last letter with you everywhere you went for months on end, unopened. Who wants to hear that? Uh, I wrote it because I had something to say to you. Yeah, it's... Mm. Uh, but I'm thinking about uh, the you of your books mm -hmm. and about addressability and uh, how there always seems to be this very not always, mm -hmm. but an addressee as an, mm -hmm, an opening, mm -hmm. and that they are very different, mm -hmm. but I mean, the, the Prince of Blue is a very different you yeah. than Harry in yeah. the Organauts. Yeah. But yeah. it's important for you to have this yeah. you. I mean, it has been, I don't know if it will always be, in it. and I haven't had it in all my books, um, no. but certainly in those two I have it. Um, I think it's probably a um, uh, it's probably a 
a habit formed from coming up as a poet um, and as the uh, the uh, the book that you have here about the New York School, which is a school of poetry in New York in the kind of 50s, um, uh, of whom a poet named Frank O'Hara was a part. You know, Frank O'Hara jokingly said... Um, he was going to call their movement personism until he realized that you could just pick up the phone and call somebody and then he, there was like kind of no need. No, he, no, he was going to call it personalism and then he kind of realized you could just, and the, and the movement was like, write a poem or pick up the phone and call somebody but it was very much about a very direct address and I, and I always loved that um, and, and loved the use of the you in his poems and, and in Paul Salon and, and a kind of, I mean, Salon has a more I, thou, a kind of formal, perhaps even addressing of, of the divine, or, you know, it, it, it shifts on whether or not you think it's an intimate you, or a godlike you, or the reader you, and I've always loved in poetry how, many, how much play you could get with a second person address. Um, so the Argonauts and Bluets both have a lot of play in that, with, with one you, as you say, the Prince of Blue, and then, and then Harry and the Argonauts, who's the the, the kind of the privileged second person um, with the you, the reader, um, close, yeah. b close behind, yeah. you know. Hmm. Uh, I want to ask something about, I don't know how to ask this, but there's, uh, in Organauts, uh, there's the, the parallel, the interweaving of the, the birth of the child mm -hmm. and the death of Harry's mother. Mm -hmm. uh, and the the part, I mean, the, they're both sort of full of pain, mm -hmm. but one is the kind of still pain, mm -hmm. a kind of beautiful pain mm -hmm. of the deathbed. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and the other one is the ugly pain mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, of the body mm -hmm. and of the birth. Mm -hmm. And I was I have sort of been struggling with this. I I love it, but I also do not want it to be about how death and birth are two parts of mm -hmm. the mm -hmm. same big plan. Right, right, right. yeah. So yeah. I'm thinking is right. it possible to is, I mean is it correct to sort of read it as two different versions of pain rather? Yeah, I I think to me, it, I mean, I knew, I mean, I'm not a total dummy, so like I knew that if you juxtapose a birth-death thing, I mean, they do that on like sitcoms, you know, like they do, yeah. not just, I actually not just sitcoms, that wouldn't be funny. Um, they <laughs> no one dies, the, they, but they do the birth story with something, but like, um, but I knew that that cliche of like one life goes out, one life goes in, um, would be structurally invoked, um, but I hoped that there were a number of layers that I hoped would um, uh, disrupt that. You know, one was that, I mean, temporally, the events have nothing to do with each other. They're, you know, mm -hmm. far apart. Um, secondly, you don't know it during that sequence, but you learn later on in the book that that is Harry's adopted mother, which is kind of neither here nor there, um, except for that it isn't, like, one person becoming a mother and the death of someone's biological mother in that way of like, no. uh, of like mm -hmm. that the, our ties to the body are, so it's kind of about, 
Um, but to me, the real reason why I wanted to, it, I don't even know if it was about pain um, as much as to me it was about um, that uh, like I said, I kind of enjoy a challenge in writing and mm -hmm. people often talk about how peak experiences, so-called, like birth or death. I mean, death, you may end up dying, so you can't really write about it, but witnessing a death, say, and um, having a baby, in which you also might end up dying, but hopefully you don't. So, um, but would be, are very difficult to render in language um, because of their kind of um, butting up so directly against the ineffable. Mm -hmm. um, and I thought it was very interesting that in two different ways, um, both Harry and I had come back from these experiences and had the urge to try and write them down, you know. And his account of his mother's death, he wrote just as an email, um, which he sent to a small coterie of friends who might have known Phyllis, his mother, um, when he came back from watching her die. Um, and I wrote this birth story I don't know, maybe like three or four days after coming home from the hospital and, you know, I was tired and freaked out and, but I, I kind of kept thinking, God, you're a writer, like, you're supposed to write about big things, like, you should try, you know, and I just kind of was like, oh, I don't want to try, and then I just, so I, I kind of wrote, I just, I wrote very just clinically kind of what I could remember, um, not really knowing, again, like, you know, in Harry's case, he was addressing it to these people, in my case, I didn't really know who it was for, I didn't ever think it would really end up in a book, um, but when I looked at the passages, um, there were so many things about writing against that kind of experience that were similar as just tropes in the writing, like um, uh, marking time. There's a lot of marking time in mm -hmm. both pieces. Um, Harry looking at the clock a lot as his mother's dying and Mark trying to mark her breathing via this like swish of a fan that's going around and trying to tell if she's dead yet by like, is she breathing in between? Um, and then obviously the kind of endless measuring that can go on during labor of contractions or of um, dilation and how much time has passed and is it too much time? And, and I, so there were a lot of um, things about... Um, but it wasn't really pain, I mean, insofar as his mother wasn't in pain, um, and Harry's pain, I think, was kind of suspended at that point. But I was really interested in just acts of witness. Um, and, I mean, yeah, and in a cheesy sense, I guess, witnessing um, uh, a, a kind of emergence or liminal experience. And there's a moment in Harry's rent, uh, account where he says, you know, um, when he, when he watches her die at the very moment she dies, he says, I was so proud of her, you know, she, she mm -hmm. did it. Like she, she, she walked over there, you know, she, 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 you know, she, she did it, you know, and, I, and it, it was kind of such an odd thing, but just to be filled with pride that his mom did it, you know, and, you know, I mean, it, it, that's kind of a sentiment often more reserved for a birth story or something like that. You know, I felt proud of myself, as, you know, hopefully everybody who's labored feels proud of themselves for having gotten through it. But I just thought there were these really interesting interstices um, uh, that were, that were um, uh, and then I thought eventually, now this is a very long answer, um, that 
Harry was summoned throughout my book, and I put words in his mouth, and I make him fight with me and talk to me, and how annoying is that to have your partner be doing that? And, you know, now he's writing something, and I'm having to suffer through the same thing, and it's awful. It's always awful to be written about, and it's really good for me when I'm, someone writes about me because then I feel how hellish it is, and I feel such mm. sorrow that I've done that to so many people. Um, uh, but I felt like it was kind of only just... Um, Harry's a really good writer, and... He has a lot of uh, language in his work, and I felt like the book may have um, unfairly painted him as being kind of anti-language because of these like primitivist impulses I was describing. And in fact, he is a much more beautiful and complicated uh, art maker who both feels all that about language and chooses it very often as um, as a main element or medium. And so I also wanted to. Um, to interrupt that narrative of like people have been like, oh, you're the lady of words and he's the man of none. And I'm like, no, no, it's not like that. And to interrupt it by letting him speak for a prolonged period in his own voice instead of me just, you know, making him say mm. set piece things to set up an anecdote or something, you know. Uh, I, I just love the way you sort of bring beauty to death and chaos to birth or something <laughs> with by this mm -hmm. juxtapositioning. Oh, good. It's a, yeah. Uh, time is sort of running out, is it? Var är Ingmar? Ja, jag har din klocka. I was thinking we should do some questions from the audience, maybe if there are any questions in the audience. Um, you all are a sea of Darkness. Yeah, darkness. it's yeah. very... Which is uh, great, because it's really relaxing. <laughs> Here you come. <laughs> Use it later. Just can we say, I have a mic, and you just give me a sign, and I pop by with... I have with so many questions left, <laughs> if you don't yes. have... Uh, but, yeah. She's goading you. Yeah. Let's see. Ah, that's good. Let's start with the first question. Hey, um, I listened to this amazing podcast. I think you were speaking in New York Library with a teacher of yours. And oh, Wayne Kustenbaum. He's an yeah. amazing writer. Yeah. And uh, you were speaking about, I think he asked you a question about rhythm. About rhythm. And I think it was in the Argonauts. And about ryth the rhythm of thought. And <coughs> I wanted to... I wanted to ask you to, to speak about that again. Because when I, when I read the Argonauts, I, I think a lot about rhythm and about um, my experience of rhythm. Wow, did, did I say anything that night that was good? Because I can't think of uh, anything. <laughs> I don't remember. That's don't also remember, yeah. I, I, but I did this thought about it kind of brought me back to my reading. Uh, so. so interesting. <laughs> so interesting. You mean like rhythm... The rhythm of thought, is it... Um, I guess I want you to speak about form. Form. Yeah. So earlier, speaking about how uh, you're asking about ordinary language, right? And about... So this gives you a chance to build... Uh, right, 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 yeah. Like form, and then yeah. through that, the ineffable. And yeah. I think that's what I'm talking about. Is yeah, 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 yeah. How you move between different yeah. ideas or thoughts... And that kind of rhythm of that. Yeah, yeah. I see. I think okay. I think I see what you're saying. Um, 
I was thinking I'm a very unpercussive person, so I couldn't think of it. But I think that um, I think I'm sure there are probably a lot of people here who are poets, um, and in poetry you you learn different tricks than you probably learn. I don't know. I'm not a novelist or something, but I think that um, uh, it's not an accident that that a lot of my books uh, in prose. You know, you use what you use the tools that you have, right? So, um, Eileen Miles, who is a good friend and a fantastic writer, you should all read. Um, she used to always say, "Poetry is about making a poem is about two things, um, two questions: uh, should this stay or should this go, and how does this look next to this?" <laughs> and um, so, those were two tools that I feel like I firmly got in the box, you know. Maybe to my only compositional tools, you know, how does this look next to this, and should this stare, should this go? And um, but those I think are rhythmic questions because, um, say, in a book like Bluettes, uh, uh, it's about the color blue, supposedly. So, um, but it's also about sex and God and alcohol and depression and a lot of other things. Um, and so there's a kind of a uh, rhythm of digression away from the color. Um, so I would go like very far and then um, digress very far and then try and kind of keep coming home to the color. Um, but to figure out how to do that in a way that is pleasurable digression for the reader and not like someone just being going like, you know, why on earth are we in a drugstore, you know, or in this hospital waiting room? Like, wasn't this about the color blue, whatever? It's like, I feel like you have to put on your editor hat and read very slowly for rhythm of like the pacing of thought um, through a piece and, and to kind of feel um, the robustness of your river and then like where you can afford to like ebb and flow. So I think that that is um, essentially a question of juxtaposition and and then overall form. Like in Bluettes, it became very mathematical. Like, oh, I think I should touch, <laughs> the funny thing to say, I think I should touch God every eight propositions or something like that, you know, but it kind of became almost like that mathematical, like as if it was, you know, a, a composing a kind of theme and variation um, that you're, yeah, if that makes sense. So anyway, hopefully that's a, something vaguely about rhythm, but or about composing. But. Ah, good. My shoes. <laughs> Hi, thank you. Um, so one of my favorite lines in the Argonauts, um, I'm live translating, so forgive me for mistakes, um, is um, I told you that I want to live in a world um, where pride isn't the antidote for shame, but honesty. Mm -hmm. I don't know how it is in the English version, but um, I really like that phrase. Um, but at the same time, this book is also full of fragments in which shame is described without falling into this trap of sort of being this like being very quirky about it, you know what I mean? Like, oh, I did this funny thing, and mm -hmm. now I'm so ashamed mm -hmm. about it. And mm -hmm. now I, I just heard that you had to uh, erase a lot of self-righteous dribbles. Mm -hmm. um, was that necessary for you to write about shame uh, in a 
in such a good way because I think you really succeeded in such a good way and I'm just, well, I don't want to know your tricks, but, well, it's actually, I do. <laughs> it's interesting. <laughs> yeah, the only thing about that translation is that in English, the word is honor, I believe, um, not pride. Um, yeah. Which is odd because, I don't know, what you, you all have, like, pride here, like, pride month. You use that word? Yeah. yeah so but then we use the English word so that you use the word pride yeah okay yeah so i think in the you know it would be weird if in the book it's used the word pride there instead of honor mm -hmm. which is a more complicated kind of relationship to chivalry um uh but that aside um you know i don't think of the argonauts as um being about shame um I think that there are there there are um, there are vulnerabilities in it that um, expose one to the possibility of humiliation. Um, there's another uh, psychologist um, who kind of a founder of what people call affect theory named Sylvan Tompkins, um, who uh, wrote a lot about shame and then Eve Sedgwick used a lot of his writing to kind of talk about queer shame. Um, and I like, I really like his writings about shame because he um, describes it as... Um, not like what we think of as shame, like, oh, I took a big shit, or I'm so embarrassed of like this pimple, or whatever, like kind of uh, <laughs> bodily taboos, but more in terms of, um, of when you, um, like say your alcoholic dad comes home and you act really excited to see him, and he just kind of is like, you know, get out of my way, kid, you know, and, like, and, and, and it was because you were so excited and put yourself out there wanting love and then we're just you know blown blown off by dad or something that 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 kind of um that that kind of deep openness or vulnerability um can can make such instant feelings of sh of, of being ashamed but so i think that the book has uh, kind of a, maybe a lot of the latter but it's not um uh it's not I don't think I feel shame about some of the things that other people feel shame about, <laughs> I've noticed, um, as I've gone around with that book, um, which is interesting, because you learn a lot about the culture when you, um, like when people tell you, this part's so brave, and you make mm -hmm. a mental note to yourself that they think there was a problem with that, like that you overcame or something when you, you didn't know that. Um, so that's interesting. But I think, so I think that, um, uh, but I think in terms of writing and drafts and getting to interesting things, um, you know, just the same way self-righteousness, I think, has to be, or at least in my case, I try and get rid of it. Um, I don't think being vulnerable or being open is like as easy as it might sound, you know, and you might write something that it feels really open or vulnerable to you. And when you read it later, it'll be, it might sound shellacked with all of your defenses. And, um, and so 
really trying to get to, like in the conversation you mentioned in the book where Harry and I are talking about these concepts that we both hold really dear, like him holding honor really dearly and my being kind of horrified by his, um, you know, like, I mean, I'm sure many of you, you may come to an intimate fight or confusion with someone you're very close to where you realize you hold like a radically different thing, a value. In mine, in that case, I was saying, I want it to be honesty. And he was saying, I want it to be honor, you know? And, um, and again, like maybe this brings us back to the beginning of our conversation. Like if you've had a kind of go for broke, um, you know, rip off the mask kind of idea like about honesty and it's meeting somebody who has a very, out of necessity in the world, a very um, put together sense of how to have honor in a world that is ready to violently remove it from you at any given moment, um, you're gonna need to understand each other. <laughs> you know, you, you, can't just, you can't just fight about the concepts you have to try and understand each other. And so, um, uh, and that takes time in person and on the page, I think. That makes sense. Some more questions? Jenny. Ja. I want to ask you about the eye of your text. I mean, there's a different eye in different books, but mm -hmm. there's also, there are some similarities, perhaps. Mm -hmm. um, uh, you could call it the auto-theoretical eye, mm -hmm. perhaps. Um, and I was thinking, is, is this eye connected to what you say about uh, the development of a self. We develop even in mm -hmm. utero in response to a flow of projections and reflections ricocheting, ricocheting off us. Eventually we call that snowball a self, Argo. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering if you could say something about the relationship between this mm -hmm. self mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. the, the I. Mm -hmm. The I meaning the first person who the speaks. The first person, yeah. yes. The Jaget, as we say in Swedish, yeah. it's a very handy word. I like that. I'm going to start saying <laughs> yeah. that instead. Um, well, what to say? A lot of things come to mind to say. Um, maybe I'll say this because it relates to what we were talking about in the what we call the green room. Um, uh, is that what you all call it? The green room? No? Okay, whatever. Um, the pre-room. So... Uh, we were talking about uh, Anne Sexton and Sylvia Plath, and I was saying that I had written on them to American poets known in the 50s for um, what was then called, con you know, confessionalism. And I uh, started off as a, you know, a student, as an undergraduate, writing a thesis, which was very presciently called, as I said in the Argonauts, the performance of intimacy, and it was about um, it was about the first person in those poets, um, and I was very interested in um, 
I was coming up in a moment, which I'm not sure if you all have had or have in poetry here, but in the 80s, um, there was a lot of backlash against the kind of, uh, you know, consolidated bourgeois first person speaking voice of a poem. You've had that. You've had that. Okay, great. So you're all with me, the anti-lyric thing. And I always felt like it was, I got it. And I'm like, thumbs up with the revolution and everything. But I was confused about the way, I mean, that mean, I sound glib and I don't mean it to be, but I, I was, um, I never bought the eye as this stable lyric entity. I just didn't, I didn't, I, did, I just, um, I, I thought of it very differently as this kind of endlessly languid and malleable performance piece. Um, and so, I, I got it that being a ma malleable or fluid performance piece doesn't mean that it still isn't self-referential or isn't in some ways um, uh, you know in some ways reflecting a, you know of a single self but I just um, I think by um as you say, like in the different books, by using it differently in a serial fashion, I feel mm. like I get a chance to explore those different things um, in a way that doesn't feel to me um, politically conservative or reifying of a, a, a kind of subjectivity. I mean, other people can read it that way and that's totally fine and they're probably totally correct. Um, although I would refer you know, I think that Adorno kind of had it right about the lyric eye and invoking, like, you, you never really get out of invoking sociality or the world because the lyric eye just calls attention to itself as chiseled from it and how strange and impossible a, a situation that might be. So anyway, I'm, I feel far afield, but that's my first thought about the eye. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Uh, well, I think our time is up. Uh, I know we're still here, who knows for how long, <laughs> ablaze with our care, this ongoing song. It's one of the most beautiful pieces of writing I've read. That Thank is you. so kind. Thank you very much. Thank you guys. Thank you everybody for coming. Thank you. Mm -hmm.